0: Thank you for tuning in to Crossroads, an information podcast. I am your host, Andrew Vitelli, a senior reporter for Spark Spread. Our guest today is someone who everybody in the renewable sector knows very well, Mona Tajani, who leads the renewable energy team at the law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw-Pittman. Mona has a long background working in renewables. She is a licensed engineer and is really one of the brightest and most knowledgeable people across the renewable space. Mona, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Uh, I'm really excited to be on your show. This is uh, very exciting.
0: Well, I'm excited to have you here as a guest and talk about the renewable sector. So I I gave our audience a little bit of a rundown of your background. But can you tell me a little bit about your team at Pillsbury and what you're focusing on?
1: Sure, yeah. So we are a multidisciplinary team. We do everything soup to nuts in renewable energy and clean tech. And that means that you know, we're doing uh, joint ventures, M&A, financing, tax equity. Uh, you know, and then of course we have all the ancillary pieces as well like the regulatory and the real estate and environmental and antitrust and et cetera. So we're, we're soup to nuts, full service uh, firm and we are focusing on the, you know, the clean energy, renewable energy sector, and really, you know, trying to make a difference. My team is all over. I have people that are my colleagues that are with me here in New York. Uh, I also have uh, some in California, Texas, London, Japan, all over. So we're we're an international uh, practice. Uh, I myself am uh, dual-qualified both here in the U.S. as well as in London. And as a result, we have a lot of um, foreign clients that want to do uh, business here in the United States and abroad.
0: So it's been a really exciting last few years with stellar growth across the renewables industry. Where do you see the most opportunity and the most potential right now uh, looking forward?
1: Yeah, I see three broad trends in our, you know, in the in the renewable energy space that are new for 2022, and I think that they're going to be getting stronger, and they will proliferate more. Um, the first trend is that we are definitely seeing this energy transition towards a clean, carbon-free world that's largely been increasing our use of renewables and increasing premiums on the use of fossil fuels. And this is a global phenomenon. We're seeing electrification as one of the significant ways to decarbonize energy, whether that is like switching to electric vehicles or uh, solar, wind, et cetera, are biofuels. So we're we're definitely seeing we're we're definitely seeing that and and clean energy alternatives that can provide a reliable supply of power when supply from renewable sources dips. So that's one of the trends that we see. And I, I know we'll will also another big trend that we're working on a lot of uh, here in the United States and in Europe and, and Asia is um, other clean energy alternatives that have come to fruition. For example, the European Commission has a strategy to develop green hydrogen for use uh, from 2030. And there are other exciting energy alternatives, including magma power, which uses heated steam produced by magma deep within the earth to generate electricity. And in fact, we worked on a deal in Iceland where they were using magma enhanced geothermal system to uh, generate electricity, so that's really cool. The second trend that we're seeing is in a nutshell, it's all about decentralization. We are transitioning away from our current system of highly centralized energy grids that are run by monopolistic energy providers and more towards distributed energy. In other words, we're seeing more combination of renewable energy and localized microgrids, so consumers can generate their own power for their own needs. Whether this is from solar panels or even EVs, Uh, We're talking about decentralized energy schemes and that can serve anything from a single building to an entire housing project or even a whole city. This is super exciting for us um, because it means that individual uh, consumers, organizations, and local authorities can take charge of their own energy and portfolio. The last really big trend, macro trend in our space is digitization. And this is all about the use of digital machines, devices, and technology to optimize energy production infrastructure and the use. And we have, quote unquote, everything intelligent these days, from intelligent coffee machines to intelligent vacuum cleaners. And now we're moving to, and towards energy networks energy, you know, intelligent energy networked, And this is linked to this trend of digitization is linked to the other two trends that I was just talking about. And this really increases the variety of zero carbon energy sources that will mean our energy networks become more and more complex. We'll see decentralized grids that will need intelligent solutions to monitor and manage fluctuating demands. And these digital tools will help us overcome these challenges and realize a lot of uh, the much needed changes in the energy uh, sector. So, you know, some of these tools are just as an example is AI and predictive uh, analytics. This is, these are used to analyze and predict demand and adjust where power is drawn from on the distributed grids. The other is the internet of things, which includes smart home thermostats and commercial building thermostats that can help uh, cut down energy use. Um, Another one is blockchain, which would be useful for creating smart contracts that allow the customers and end users to trace where their energy comes from. And the last is digital twins, which can be used to create a virtual replica of a power plant or even an entire grid, allowing providers to model different scenarios and make better decisions and improve efficiencies. So definitely, this, these are like the three biggest trends that, I, uh, that I've been seeing within the energy sector. And, you know, if, if you, you guys want to, if any of your listeners want to um, stay on top of these trends and others, we have a uh, newsletter that we put out on a quarterly basis, which, you know, talks about these trends and others, specifically in the renewable energy space.
0: You mentioned generating power for magma. Is that basically you're tapping into a volcano and using its heat to generate energy?
1: Yeah, isn't that super that cool? That sounds very dangerous, Mona. <laughs> well, it's already been done, so it's all good. You know, it's been done in Iceland. And there's others that have have I mean, we're taking something, we're taking a free resource and basically, you know, turning it into a renewable energy source to power a lot of uh, industrial uses. So it's actually pretty cool.
0: It, it does sound cool. Is that something that's applicable in the United States? I don't know how many active volcanoes we have at the moment.
1: I don't think it's it's the volcanoes is active here in the United States, but this uh, the technology was a geothermal, and we do have a lot of geothermal energy here in the U.S. that we could, and that we have been, and there's projects that we've been taking advantage of. So, yes.
0: Well, that is really fascinating. I have to say I have not covered any of those projects, but that's a really Fascinating and scary technology.
1: (laughs) Hey, if it's clean and it's carbon free and it's renewable, what's the, you know, and it's safe and you're eliminating, you know, death from air pollution and slowing or reverse the effects of global warming. I don't see there's anything wrong with that. I think it's great if you have the resource, yeah.
0: So we have seen a lot of growth in the renewables industry in the last few years, but of course, it hasn't been immune to the challenges when it comes to supply chains that the economy as a whole is facing. And we've seen some of that really since last fall in increasing prices and a little bit more price volatility. I think that in the past, renewables prices have been consistently going down and that's changed a little bit. So how big a challenge has that been for the industry? And what are some of the main specific issues that have led to these rising prices and led to a little bit of the uncertainty?
1: Well, you know, it's, I mean, we're looking at this, this supply chain disruption is a global phenomenon, okay? And it affects all supply chain and all different industries, not just renewable energy and you know, beyond COVID-19 and the natural disasters, there to, you know, the, there, there have un, an, including cybersecurity breaches and trade disputes, all of these have taken their toll on the global supply chain. But I have to say that the, the supply chains are adapting and they're rebounding and businesses are examining the costs and challenges and how are they going to, you know, overcome them. And, you know, and I think you know, you, it, it depends on the specific industry that you're in, you know, um, and, and how you can mitigate, you know, some of the uh, supply chain issues. So, when, so for example, um, you know, we represent a lot of EV companies and OEMs and battery suppliers and et cetera, and they clearly have, you know, a different driver to reduce the supply chain than you know, for example, solar panels. So there are um, you know definitely ways to you know when you're when you know to uh, to combat the supply chain uh, challenges. You know, so in the EV space, for example, what we're seeing is that there have been innovation and um, um, frankly a lot of M and they're looking at, they're driving value in the supply chain, you know, whether it is developers or EV manufacturing, you're seeing, a, what I'm seeing a lot of is that we're seeing the supply chain as a strategic asset rather than a tactical expense. And we, we look at trying to provide some uh, intangible t- uh, benefits to and you know economic benefits to advance the sustainability agenda, so sometimes that's you know we're seeing some acquisitions up on the vertical chain. We're seeing also that there you know as technologies and regulations mature, that there's a lot of companies that are evaluating their procurement strategies and how to take advantage of them. So, but definitely the the supply chain has been. Um, you know like a, like i said just a, it's it's been a global issue and everyone's dealing with it in different ways there are some like in the automotive industry they and others they've just shut down factories because they're just they don't have enough it's killing the the business you know if they don't have a proper uh, supply chain of strategies there's many steps that companies can take to appease uh, some of these supply chain issues, but it, it is causing rising costs for, for raw materials and prolonged delays, and you know these are also causing like commodity prices to go up. It's bad. It's a global problem that's uh, bad for you know all industries, not just renewables, but you know in the renewables, it like if we look at um, wind, for example. It's the price of steel, which comprises about 70% of the cost of a wind turbine, which is nearly twice as expensive as it was before the pandemic. And prices for other important metals are also rising. And then the shipping delays and high freight costs plus the factory delays caused by COVID has also hampered and caused delay in, you know, in planned projects. So, the volume of renewable energy projects has definitely been falling. It is a rough patch right now, but it's not a death sentence. So it's definitely a good time for um, whether you're a developer, or you're in private equity, or you're uh, a utility, these are, these are uh, some of the major clients that we represent it's a good time to look at either acquisitions or some uh, disposition or some other financing strategies that we can help provide to alleviate some of these supply chain woes.
0: Along with the broader supply chain issues, another issue that was facing the industry is questions about uh, human rights abuses in the Xinjiang province of China. I know that a lot of the solar panels especially are sourced from China and that has caused a lot of uncertainty in uh, for solar developers how has the industry weathered that
1: yeah well i've been involved in a lot of transactions where this you know has definitely ex- uh, affected our deal and this has also caused spikes in the uh, the cost of the of the solar panels you know, and there, there's there been a lot of uh, ways that uh, companies are, you know, clearly dealing with this, but it highlights, you know, probably the biggest, some of the Chinese, some of the largest, uh, you know, yes, as you said, Andrew, the majority of all solar panels are made in China, in this province, and like Longi, for example, is probably the largest uh, solar panel supplier, and there has been some... Um, Pressure to eliminate these labor abuses from the country's supply chain, without smothering, you know, the solar industries here in the United States. So it's a tough tightrope that the Biden administration is walking on. What I've been seeing is that, like uh, the polysilicon, which is the key ingredient in solar panels, we have seen a lot of of our um, developers. Look at sourcing polysilicon from other suppliers, and generally they tend to be much more expensive. It's been very uh, important and very, uh, you know, polarizing depending on what side of the fence you stand on here in the United States, whether this is something that can be uh, weathered or not. But it does, it has co- caused major disruptions. Um, and it's very hard to pinpoint, like all the different, different exposures. So there have been some um, investigations into the U.S. solar supply chains, which have been started. And, you know, definitely Chinese suppliers are on Washington's radar. You know, recently, the Biden administration extended the 203 tariffs. But they did leave the bifacial solar panels as an exception, which is going to be really important. So two sides of the story, um, you know, those uh, developers and that rely very heavily on the on the Chinese solar uh, panels will say that this is a political issue. It's not and it's not based on facts. And of course, Beijing echoes this position, but. You know the Biden administration is um, sees otherwise. You know, with respect to the two hundred three tariffs that were just passed, there is a high and and rising trade risk to solar product imports. Um, but you know, again, there will be uh, what 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 the Biden administration is trying to do is to. Um, De-risk some of the solar deployment with new import um, constraints, and um, and I think this whole thing with the with the um, you know the bifacial solar panels are uh, very you know is a good um, exception and compromise. But again, um, the U.S. companies were dependent on the cooperation of the Chinese suppliers to implement tracing and auditing programs to verify that their supply chains are not exposed to potential labor issues, and I think, you know, the the solar industry is adapting and changing and, you know, we're uh, pivoting. So it is a problem, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's very polarizing in our industry. I don't know, Andrew, if that answers, gives you some view.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And certainly the developers need some clarity, at least in terms of how they're able to move forward. One final thing I wanted to ask you about is the policy front. Now, I have to say, when I was having conversations for most of last year, for much of last year, there was what I thought was maybe excessive uh, excessive optimism on the chances of a big renewables bill passing through Congress and being signed by the president. And I thought that might have been making its way into some deals. And in December, Joe Manchin said that he would not support Build Back Better, which was going to be the vehicle for a lot of this policy help for the renewables sector. Now, Mona, I'm curious whether since that's happened, there's been any kind of a reevaluation across the industry. If people are reevaluating how much they're willing to pay for assets, Now, now knowing that it's maybe a little bit more uncertain whether there's going to be a lot of policy help coming anytime soon.
1: Well, let me just let me let me go back and kind of set up the history of the bill. You know, originally Biden had a very large and ambitious bill that was including not just clean energy, but also infrastructure among other things, you know. And they and then he really promoted this bill as part of his re-election platform. So, when he got elected, you know, as president, people thought that, you know, this was kind of a slam dunk. It was going to happen. And then it, it became very obvious very quickly early on that this was just too ambitious for our country to rally around. You know, there was too many, too many different initiatives here and government support. And then what happened was it was uh, the, it, it was split into an infrastructure bill and a social clean energy, and that's really what the the Build Back Better is now. And the infrastructure bill did pass, which was great. And now we're we're looking at this, you know, the Build Back Better, and we've had because we knew that it was going to be very difficult for the clean energy pieces, because it, w- it really was very aggressive, was going to be passed. So now where we stand with the Build Back Better is, and then I'll, t- I'll kind of tell you where I think it's going to go, is that it hasn't really gotten momentum. Senator Joe Moshin um, is focused very much on inflation, on the rising inflation. And he believes that Congress needs to constrain spending, and the rising inflation, and I think with the inflation and even today what happened, you know, with the consumer price index rising over 7.5% and the, the fastest pace since 1982, these are all, you know, reverberating in Capitol Hill. And I think that um, lawmakers now are prioritizing trying to get inflation under control. And they want to... Uh, you know, once they have inflation under control, then we could focus more on the on the build back better. There are I could tell you that there's ongoing discussions among Democrats about how to revive it in some form, but these inflation numbers are putting a finer point, and how difficult it could be to cobble together a politically palatable uh, reconciliation package. So. What I see going forward is that this Build Back Better will likely be split up in different pieces. You know, like, for example, like one would be just the EV credit. One would be just the the, the hydrogen PTC credit. I am, I'm serving my third term. I'm on the board for ACOR and uh, the American Council of Renewable Energy. And we are Pref, We are working with members of Congress in, um, you know, trying to get at least smaller pieces of this to get some traction. And I can tell you that we have been. So I don't see the Build Back Better the way it is now, that all of it in its entirety will be passed the way it is. And I think that it's going to take a while because we need to get inflation under control a little bit more. Um, and there are, there's a lot of speculation about what's going to be done in our economy. But I do believe that, you know, we're we're definitely going to be seeing rate hikes at least for this year, and the first one coming up in March. This is going to affect the Build Back Better as well, and I do see this, and I'm very bullish, especially on certain portions of it that it will, will get passed because of all the support that we're, we are seeing.
0: Do you think at least the renewables aspect, you give it a good chance of, getting, of it getting passed before the midterm elections?
1: It depends on where we land. It, again, I think it's very much tied to inflation in our economy. And it depends on how aggressive you know, the Fed is going to be with our rates and whether they're going like, to shock the system or not. One, one of the things that, that I'm hearing is that there's a call for like an emergency rate hike, like 75 basis points in March. And if this would happen, then there would be, you know, it, it, it would help, I think, more with the Build Back Better, you know, but again, and I'm seeing a lot of banks um, revising and becoming more hawkish, you know, City Goldman Sachs, you know, and I do believe that the Fed is definitely trying to, I don't want, I want them to understand that this inflation, you know, it's increasing the risk that we will end up chasing the markets and not catching up soon enough. So again, we're seeing um, a move up in yields and a, um, a flattening of some of the curves and all of this is consistent with a greater, with greater market concerns and, you know, possibly a policy error by, by, uh, the fed. I'm, you know, and I'm, I know I'm kind of going off a little bit off the reservation, but I believe that this directly impacts the build back better. That's why I'm want people to understand why I'm focusing on inflation and our economy.
0: Absolutely. There are a lot of moving parts here and it's always hard to predict what is going to come out of Washington. Well Mona, thank you so much for joining me here today. This has been a great conversation. I, I appreciate you coming on as a guest.
1: I want to say thank you so much. I'm always thrilled to be, you know, on your show and love to connect with you and your audience. And if your audience has any questions for me, we'd love to I'd love to uh, hear from them. Just, you know, reach out, email me or call. It'll be great. Thank you so much.
0: And absolutely make sure you are following Mona's newsletter that was mentioned early in this program. Well, thank you for tuning in. And make, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if it's not too much trouble, give us a five-star review. This has been Crossroads.